Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. And after breaking down world history with 100 or so movies, we are recapping everything with a tournament to determine the most interesting person in history. And these people were chosen for their brackets based on, well, number one, they had to be at least mentioned in an episode. So these aren't necessarily the titular characters in the movie or even the main characters, uh, but they had to at least be mentioned. And uh, the rest we just kind of made up. It's uh, the criteria for voting and stuff is going to change, but it's, uh, you know, that's just how it goes. Right. And these may not be the actual most interesting people in history because we are restricted to only those that were brought up in the podcast previously. So someone like a Leonardo da Vinci, we've kind of maybe given a tip of the hat to and call this the Leonardo da Vinci award for most interesting person in history. (laughs) Because he is he's the correct answer. Uh, But unfortunately, we didn't do a movie about him. Right, right. (laughs) So. We're going to get right into today's first matchup here is Napoleon Bonaparte versus Catherine de' Medici. And the case for and against Napoleon, again, we want to start with just kind of an impartial case for and against both. Then we'll kind of get into how we actually feel about each of these. Napoleon, again, has that we've kind of been using as a, oh, it hasn't necessarily had a lot of swaying power in our, in our vote, but staying power as far as notoriety and he's an household name so he fits the i would say roughly at a glance half the people on this list are still household names and the other half are maybe more obscure historical figures napoleon obviously a household name absolutely revolutionized 19th century not just france but europe and well yeah in the world even, even right. more than just europe right, too, in the, yeah. right the world i mean he sold the louisiana purchase to a young country named the united states and right. Uh, but the one thing I was thinking about is he, and I could be wrong, is he the only person who has like a warring period named after him? Like it's named after a person. So it's like you think about like the Hundred Years' War or the battle over this. It's like, no, in 19th century Europe, you had the Napoleonic Wars. I right. can't think of another person who has wars named after them to that I was extent say, even even in world war ii we don't call those like the wars against hitler like yes. that's world war ii right but that's basically what this was right and is the same thing you know for the time and had even though he was just france it's like it, there's these multiple coalitions of all these other countries that were like all right well he's really good at war so we gotta all team up to stop him to keep the balance of power in europe fair and he's like yeah Nice try. And then with just France, beats everyone else anyway. It's like, I still don't right. even really understand how he did that other than he was one of the most brilliant military tacticians in the history of the planet. Is that correct and fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. So the case against, he obviously he wasn't perfect. He did make many mistakes in, 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 in his conquests along the way. And I don't actually have a good case against <laughs> beyond... He ultimately kind of loses and just kind of fades into obscurity and exile. But that's again, that doesn't make him less interesting. So it's, I'm trying to think what makes what makes Napoleon less interesting. Nothing really comes to mind. I mean, you you can kind of I guess 
maybe make a, a similar argument to what we did against Joan of Arc, where outside of oh, a, oh, true. the emperor, you know, the, the military leadership stuff, what else is he doing? I mean, in reality, kind of a lot, but not really much that he's known for, at least like to your John Q public. Right. He is kind of ju- you're right. like he did a bunch of other stuff. He had the Napoleonic Code. He, you know, prioritized education, you know, modernized the French economy. Right. A lot of things that we still do today is like like societal norms as far as how societies run. A lot of those were established by Napoleon in France. Like, yeah, it's just like kinda, going to high school. Like, yeah, exactly. Just little <laughs> things like that. It's it's, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. So, but again, I guess, yeah, you could say the, the case against is just that there's there's no secrets. There's not there's not really much that we're going to say that you don't already know about Napoleon. So he's kind of a victim of he's less interesting because you kind of know. We're not going to be like, oh, yeah, big reveal. It's like, well, no, he he was basically groomed. Well, not groomed, but he was just he got into the military young, went to a military school and then got into the military and was really good at being in the military and just advanced right. really quickly and took over France and Europe. So Right, and then was part of a coup and the, right, right, yeah. Right. But it's basically he was that's all he was. It wasn't like and he was also a published author. Which actually I don't think he was, but uh, <laughs> he was just a military guy through and through. He was really good at it. So kind of like yeah, Joan of Arc was the best right. at the at you know being this inspiration. Napoleon was the best at conquering Europe. Right. Right. <laughs> so he does deserve to be, even even though he's a more contemporary figure, I mean, this is a guy who comes to power when the United States is already a 30-year-old country. Right, yeah. And he is worthy of being in the same breath with Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, who are all ancient figures. I mean, Genghis is a little more recent, but then Napoleon. He, is, right. If you're going to make that group of four, it might be, a, yep. it might be those four, and then it's where it stops. You can get into some of the Indian figures we're going to talk about, but as far as the vastness led by a single person, holy cow, Napoleon did it. Right, yeah. And you think about, like, you know, the military genius and stuff, like, it, even more so than, like, someone who, who we would revere, you know, like a George Washington or something. Like, you know, George Washington was a great military leader and, and was, you know, obviously very influential in the creation of the United States, but he didn't, like, then go on to conquer the entire continent Right, you know I mean? right, like, Napoleon right. did, he kind of did both. He, you know, was, after the revolution, was was uh, instrumental in, like, getting rid of the, the king and stuff. But then after that, then was like, oh, now I'm emperor, and I'm going to go do all this conquering. Right. Something I always remember, and I probably mentioned it back, uh, so yeah, I should, uh, should say, we did not do a movie about Napoleon, but we did do Master and Commander, which was set right. during the Napoleonic era, and it was about battles of British versus French ships, but right. those French ships were under the jurisdiction or under the rule of, of Napoleon. Right. If you go on that French ship and you follow the chain of command all the way up, it right. ends at Napoleon. So. Right, right. <laughs> and then we did, and I did a big one on the French Revolution, which I don't know if I mentioned Napoleon there, but he, does, he is kind of the after, aftermath, kind of falls in that power vacuum. But I think what I did mention... And it always just kind of sticks in my mind. In in War and Peace, Tolstoy goes off on this whole little, like almost like an essay within the thing, and just kind of having the debate of was Napoleon basically that gifted, and that regardless of when Napoleon was born, he would have risen to prominence, and if not seized power, have been that dominant of a force, or were the conditions in France at the time? such that 
someone was going to rise. And in the absence of Napoleon, it would have been somebody else. I think the sec- I think the second one. Okay. I think the second one. I, I think it's probably both, honestly. I think it's both. Cause I, th- oh, I mean, it was definitely a perfect, you know, right place, right, right, right. time. But for sure, after the French Revolution, like, the French Revolution was going to happen one way or another just because of the way that the economic conditions in France were and the way that the aristocracy was treating the kind of peasant class. But yeah, afterwards, for sure, someone was going to fill that power vacuum. Well, it's interesting, though. You say, you, say, you say it's inevitable, but at the same time, it didn't happen everywhere. And what if, instead of Louis XVI, you have a Vlad Tepes-type figure, and he's able to suppress it and so harshly in a way that it, the resistance oh, okay. dies down and he stays on the throne? I see what you're saying. I thought you so, were saying uh, all other things being equal, like, take Napoleon out, does someone else rise? I think that that's true, but... I, sorry, I, I was. I was... I, that was more of a side note. I, that was more of a tangent about the French Revolution than anything about Napoleon. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, right. With the conditions of the French Revolution already happening, I kind of think, yes, I think if you don't have someone of Napoleon's talent, you could have a second reign of terror or other people try to rise, but there's, they're just not as capable and it doesn't happen the same way. And the flip side yeah. is without the French Revolution... And Napoleon's still existing. He's still going to rise to the military ranks. The question is, does he rise to the ranks to such a way that... It all just depends, honestly, on what the king is saying. So let's say the king is still in power, but Napoleon is still this good a general. Well, France is still going to probably feel inclined to flex its muscle. And if they still have the economic uh, situation where they're strapped for cash, I don't know to what extent Louis XVI might have had in mind to maybe start being more ambitious with taking over territory if you have someone as capable as Napoleon who's able to do that. Or yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, well, and he, well, he wasn't. He, we know that that's like the case because he was involved in conflicts prior to the French French Revolution and in the French military prior to the French Revolution. Like he went to Egypt. Well, he went to Egypt before he was in power, but that was still post French Revolution beginning. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. You're right. Yeah, again, French Revolution is a long thing. Yeah, basically, you think about Bastille Day, 1789, going all the way through Napoleon declaring himself emperor and staging a coup is like what 1805. 1804. Or 1804. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's a law. Basically, that's basically his whole career militarily was happening post-Bastille Day. But, yes, right. he, yeah, it's... Anyway, so, so that's... We'll say that's the case for and against Napoleon. Let's, uh, let's look at <laughs> Catherine de' Medici. Who is another one that we did not do a movie specifically about her. Right, she came up in Intolerance. The 1916, I think, D.W. Uh, D. Griffith uh, film that kind of covers all different time periods. And she was the mother of the king during the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre when the Catholics right. uh, killed a bunch of Huguenots, the, the Protestants within the country, not just in Paris, but all over France. And right. in the movie, we see her kind of being a driving force for that escalating to full-on massacre, which is accurate. But at the same time, I don't mean that to make it sound like she's a, an evil woman or anything. But so the, the the case for her, she is, I would argue, of course, again, you, you do see she is definitely the most powerful woman of the six, of 16th century Europe. That's You can't even make an argument, I don't even think, to say anybody else. Um, sure. If not one of the most powerful women in the last thousand years in Europe. Like, or right. just, just the, the, so she was the, the mother of three kings of France. Because they all just kind of died young in succession. But it does make me think of Matilda in the sense of how many connections she had. So not in the same way necessarily, because it's it's not necessarily 
the famous people who were her ancestors and then the hourglass way of then the famous people being her descendant descendants although there are plenty but just the world she walked in so you think about the diversity i always talk about so medici so obviously she's from the italian rich banking family of the medicis her father was lorenzo de medici one of the one of the most prominent figures of that time and then she's married off into the second son of the king of france so not really with the idea of being the the queen and if it was anything it was kind of a lucky match because they're not royal they're just rich and just coming from this rich family she's able to get married into the second son of the king of france that's 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 a big deal yeah but then all these all these her parents die super young and all these this marriage is being arranged by her uncle you know the pope and right yeah, yeah, yeah. so because the medicis were so tied into that like I think she had multiple uncles that were popes. Like, so she's connected to the Medici's and the most powerful rich family in Italy, you know, at, at right. this time period. She's and the Catholic li- Church. Right. The Catholic Church is related to the popes. And then she's married and into the French royalty. Right. Married into French <laughs> royalties, you know, married to a French. Her husband becomes king and then her sons are kings. And uh, the one I just realized last night, this is another kind of tangential connection. And I don't know how I missed it earlier is. So her, you know, her sons are dying young, which is why they go son to, you know, basically it's three brothers in a row that are these kings right. because they are dying before they're having kids. And well, her first son was married to Mary, Queen of Scots. Right. Yeah. 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 And I'm just yep. like, so one of the influences for and Mary, Mary yeah. Queen of Scots actually lived in yes. in their court in right. France for a while. Yeah. So yeah. that and then only leaves because her the the first French king dies and then she's like oh I guess I'll go back to Scotland but yeah then like so like the the mother figure for Mary Queen of Scots when she's living over in France is Catherine de Medici who then yeah. later later is you know in, instrumental as we saw in the movie Intolerance when it's then the religious strife which is a whole right. other dynamic right. that comes into play. Well, and then she also has a connections to like the occult and like Nostradamus. She had summoned Nostradamus to court. Like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that one. <laughs> yeah. Wait. So, so is the French king who died like with getting the, like the thing in his eye? Was that her husband? Uh, yeah. So Henry Henry the second of France, who's killed in the jousting. With yeah. The, yeah. Thankfully, yeah, that's her husband. Oh my! I even missed that one. I I was. Yep. <laughs> Yep. So, and then of course, he also got into all the marriage alliances when she's trying to figure out, you know, which which women to marry to her sons. But then also, is it her daughters or her, like? There's actually a wedding in play in the film Intolerance. Is not actually one of her daughters marrying like the guy from Navarre. I don't. Know. I actually forget. I forget. I forget off the top of my head. She almost has too much to even keep in mind. There you go. Okay, the king's sister Margaret to the Protestant Henry Navarre. That's what it is. Yeah. But yeah, so then set, you know, the whole massacre is happening right after or right around the wedding of uh, one of her daughters to a Protestant who she's, you know, doing a good job of being friendly with. But there's this, even in this 100-year-old movie, there's this tension between them over kind of this religious stuff. And it does kind of sound like she just never understood Protestantism or their, their complaints or just the fact that they weren't being treated fairly and all that. She just, it just... She was just kind of clueless on all on all what the, what they were even complaining about, but then at the same time, it was almost like a preemptive strike. They were became of, so afraid of the Protestants that she's kind of helped prod her son to say like, "You have to kill them before they kill us." So it wasn't like right. I want them to die because of their faith. She was literally right. okay with her daughter marrying a Protestant, but they became so afraid of the Protestants, it was kind of like we got to kill them before they kill us. Yeah, and that led to the massacre. So all of that is just this one woman's life and she was in the center of all this for for decades and then ultimately did in the kind of this 
similar to Isabella of France and Matilda, as her son, her third son, kind of then flexes his muscle a little more. She's more relegated to the backseat in a lesser and lesser advisory role and doesn't have the same power. But yeah, so I guess the case against her would be kind of, I guess, the same thing we were saying with some of these other women who just aren't given enough power and are just kind of used as pieces. But and, you know, she didn't necessarily like pick her husband or pick, you know, she doesn't pick a lot of these things that happen to her. She just kind of finds herself in in the situation. But she definitely uh, walked in a a lot of circles. As I say, definitely another one where the uh, the lineage matters a very great deal, you know. Yeah. Someone yeah. like a Napoleon, more of a more He's of a, a nobody. self-made yeah. man. He was yeah. born poor and just right. kind of worked his way up, whereas she is just born perfectly in the middle of this Venn diagram between the Catholic Church and the uh you know, her rich Italian banking family and French royalty. More like a Cleopatra, where she was just kind of born into the situation, but the situation's fascinating. Right. Yeah, for sure. So this one, this matchup, I'm not getting a strong feeling, and I don't really have a strong feeling. Like, I really like both. So this is a one seed versus an eight seed, because everyone's heard Napoleon and the Catherine of Medici is far lesser known to this day, even though I did mention, I think it was a show uh, where she is a character now. I forget. There was a couple different shows it's I was called looking Rain. up. Rain. Okay. Okay. And it looks like Which it had I okay reviews. I haven't seen it. I just saw it when I was doing, um, I had never, I had not okay. heard of it before. Uh, I had neither. Yeah. I think it was the one that we didn't have great reviews, maybe. And even even some of the clips I saw, it looked like a little, oh, hokey. Like, it was almost like you were casting obvious American-looking people, or I don't know. Uh, what, there, yeah. was one, there was one show that had, was it this one that had uh, uh, Rob Stark from Game of Thrones was in? Or was that a different show I was looking at? Yeah, I'm looking at him. I'm looking at him. It's Richard Madden is the actor. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's in another historical fiction one, it looks like. Oh, it's a show called called Medici. Or I Medici. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. He plays one of the Medicis. It's a different show, but she is, I would assume, a character in that show. Well, she might be too young, though. It might be the generations before she's born. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Because this takes place in 1429. Almost 100, yeah. Well over 100 years before then. Giovanni yeah. de Medici. Okay, yeah. So, anyway, yeah. But it's just kind of crazy. Most Multiple shows are... And honestly, it does kind of tie into the whole history of this podcast. How I was inspired by films like... Beckett and Braveheart and Robin Hood all being connected through common lineage. Right. It's similar here with Catherine de' Medici being not too far removed from all these things where you have these, you know, a right. show called Rain where she's a character, or a, a show called uh, Medici where, you know, it's basically about her aunt, her not too long ago ancestors. Well, and also because she's connected to the French royalty, it all goes, uh, it's all connected to the Joan of Arc stuff too. Oh, right. Because this, this is about 100 years after Joan of Arc then, right? Yeah. Oh, right. So, yeah, you could basically, you know, the king that Joan of Arc puts on the throne, well, then he's going to be related to her kids. Yeah, yeah, and her husband. Yeah, so, anyway, as far as how we feel, I'm kind of torn. I will say that I am uh, leaning Napoleon. And, and and I kind of was, I can, honestly, I kind of was too, but you've been going so much for the underdog women that I was kind of expecting now you to go to Medici, even though I was like, I kind of got to go Napoleon. So, in this instance, and I have definitely been <laughs> voting underdog women, but uh, the things that I think give Napoleon the edge are, one, self-made. So he was not born into royalty. He right, wasn't right. born at, in this perfect Venn diagram of all these, you know, influences. He was, he was actually born poor. 
Um, he didn't even learn the French language until he was like 10. Right, right. It had an accent that the kids teased him about and stuff. Yeah. Right. He, he gets bullied for his accent, but then he goes to this military academy basically just as a way to learn. He's like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, I want to go to school. And the way that I can do that is by going to this military academy and works his way up through the ranks. And then uh, one of the other things that I value heavily in this bracket is the staying power, the uh, recognizability of someone's name. So here we are hundreds of years later and you say Napoleon and people know exactly what that is. And just, you're right. There's something about the idea of, so we got Joan of Arc, her story was kind of truncated versus this is a kid born. Oh, I'd say probably more middle-class, lower middle-class on Corsica who literally became the emperor of france right that's insane yeah like everyone else is like well yeah i mean they were i don't know you can think of like like a like a caesar and we'll talk about caesar obviously too but it's again it really is that big of a deal or so i guess it napoleon was the first person in how many hundreds of years who became the sole ruler of france but wasn't like born into it right right and it wasn't even like, oh, well, you know, or even it wasn't even like William the Conqueror. So like when William the Conqueror, who had a, you know, has, you know, a claim he can make based on lineage, then goes and wins on the field of battle to defeat, you know, one claim, claimant for the throne to be, take the throne. This wasn't even right. that. It's basically like he comes into a France that's trying to become, well, first a constitutional monarchy and then some sort of democratic republic. And then he comes in and says like, no, it's an empire and I am the first emperor. Right, yeah. It's like Star Wars. <laughs> yes! It's, so, no, I I am fascinated by Catherine de' Medici, but I gotta go Napoleon, too. It's almost kind of a slam dunk. Yeah. He is a fascinating figure that, honestly, I think has almost become underrated because of the, all the short jokes or Napoleon complex and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. And... Uh, that'll be something to maybe get into more here when we talk about it in, this, in the second round because I thought I've kind of heard both. I've heard like, oh, he was made fun of for being short, they mentioned on the Wikipedia page. But I thought I'd also heard, well, no, based on the average height of people at the time, he was ordinary. He was small when he was a kid. So Is that what it was? When he was a kid for being small, but then he grew up to be just normal five, size. seven, which at the time is like normal. average size. Oh, okay, gotcha. So a small kid, normal adult, which is right. why we kind of get both stories. That makes sense. Anyway. Well, and also a lot of that, the whole like, oh, Napoleon was short has to do with, uh, well, we grow up in a country where we speak English. So we have this, you know, going back to English mm, history. The that's English true. English would like, you know, say these things about him because they... True. We're not fans of Napoleon. <laughs> right, right. Our our ancestors so, were, or our relatives, yeah, you're right. Our, our team was anti-Napoleon, I guess you would say. Right. Yeah, yeah. So yes, Napoleon advances to the second round. Not an upset, but that was probably a tougher decision than for me than you might have thought if you hadn't heard much about Catherine de' Medici. Yeah. Okay, our next matchup today, again, I can't say this with a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> Helen Keller versus Ivan the Terrible. Just the most disparate matchup that you could even possibly set up on this whole thing. I mean, you could put her against Dracula or something like uh, someone similar like that, but just completely different lives. It's insane that they're in the same bracket. Well, and we kind of had to not cheat a and little, we, like, cheat a little bit because we, yeah, we're going from like the end of the Renaissance, you know, in the mid 1500s, all the way through 1900 when she was a little kid in the 1880s, 1890s. So 
yeah. we're cheating there a little bit, but she is getting she's getting shoehorned in, and I, I guess I would say the justification is one, she was alive before 1900, and the movie and we two, talked about was we, set before 1900. I was gonna say the movie that she was covered in, The Miracle Worker, takes place before 1900. So even though a lot of the more activist stuff that she's known for is post 1900, right? That's why she's included in the enlightened industrialist region <laughs> right in the in the pre-1900 bracket okay so the uh impartial case here for and against helen keller well again you talk about unique and interesting lives this is a person who was not born blind and deaf and became blind and deaf due to illness at a very very young age i think she's roughly 18 months old yet became world renowned and world famous now her condition itself was actually not even unique. There were other people who were both blind and deaf, but you can't right. name any of them. So right. most of them were just kind of like, oh, there's medical cases and, you know, they could, you know, rudimentarily communicate, but they didn't ever become super famous. I think, was it Charles Dickens that went around and actually met, had met one of them? It was some author. I forget off the top of my head. Anyway, there were others who were notable, but you can't name any of them. And I've even forgotten right. them, even though I've researched them. Versus Helen Keller is a household name despite having this condition because she became a public speaker and college graduate and author and founding member of the ACLU despite yeah. these beginnings. And that is fascinating. Yeah, it's, and it's someone who did all of the things that she did who was not blind or deaf would be wildly famous. Right, would already be notable. Right, right. Then someone who did all those things and was just blind would be even more famous. <laughs> and it's even that's even it's even crazier. Or just deaf. It's even crazier. But she was both blind and deaf and did all of those things. Right. Now, the case against Helen Keller is oh, okay, it's actually kind of a little bit of a, a little blow. It's just like, well, how interesting was her life? She never saw or heard anything. <laughs> I mean, I guess. That's <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> I'm just saying like Oh, but she never, you think of all the beauty in the world and all the music. And it's like, so interesting life lived. It's like, if anything, didn't she actually kind of live the most boring life? Like, it's interesting to us, but well, like to, her to experience her, was. But it's this, yeah. To her, well, probably. But, but I, I, I'm making the case against. I guess. I, I would say that the, the case against is that she, she wasn't like, you know, an Abraham Important. Lincoln where she like yeah. has this big thing that she did. She was just an activist and gave a voice to a bunch of these different movements and groups. So like, you know, she's not like going and doing like a Scopes monkey trial type thing for the ACLU. She's a founding member of it, which is impressive, but she's not, there's no like big, I guess, event or moment or fighting some battle or something like that. More of an activist. Yes, yes. Still important. Obviously, I'm not trying to downplay her activism. I'm just right. saying it's not, it's different from like a Napoleon who was like going and fighting a war or something. And was she ever actually a registered communist or just kind of communist sympathies? She, she probably... was a member of the Socialist Party of okay. America. Um, let's see. Do, 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 do. But yeah, there, so but... she, she was a member of the Socialist Party of America. And I think she even. She wrote a book called How I Became a Socialist. Okay, okay. And it was interesting, and obviously different time period. There was almost, almost, it was almost more and less controversial at the time in different ways. It was just, it was well, just viewed differently at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, it, uh, the word socialist didn't have the political connotation that it has today. But you also had more of the Red Scare issues. So that's what I'm saying. It's kind of both. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
But yes, fa- fascinating, interesting figure. Okay, impartial case for and against Ivan the Terrible. Obviously, he's, he has a very easy comparison on this list. He's he's essentially a Vlad the Impaler type figure, where he was right. born into nobility and kind of just early on started flexing his muscle and did a lot of things that previous people had not been able to do. So he is the first czar of Russia. And basically his title is supposed to just be, oh, was it the the grand prince of Moscow. So he was just kind of born into Moscow nobility. I think his father was even the leader of Moscow. He was then inherited the leadership of Moscow. Right. And he, well, he became the grand prince of Moscow when his father died, when he was only three years old. Oh, that's right. That's right. And he had some like, some sort of like regents over him. Um, right. When he was growing up. But then at 16, he said, I'm not the Grand Prince anymore. I'm the Czar, which is like from Caesar. I'm right. the Emperor. I'm, I am Big Chief Beef for all of Russia now. Right. At 16 years old. Right. Yeah, exactly. So as a teenager. And opponents beware. <laughs> right. And I think that dynamic is absolutely fascinating. So yeah, his big struggle, most part of his early reign was against what they call them the boyars. Basically the nobles in Russia at the time. Right. And that's that's kind of an Eastern European term for for nobles, just like uh, yeah, a count uh, or something, or yeah, right? Because like the the group of nobles that uh, Vlad the Impaler brought into were also the boyars. Impaled, yeah. They're also boyars, yeah. Right, right. So it's more of a, a name of a group, but yeah, it is more of an Eastern Eastern Europe kind of term. But yeah, just the fact that you know early on again he he was you know the Grand Prince from the time he was three. They just considered him a puppet that they could just kind of use as a placeholder. And it's like, you know, we're speaking on his behalf and all these kinds of things. And we're doing our own little power struggles. And he's just a kid that we treat very poorly and take for granted. And then as he becomes, you know, more and more mature and kind of, you know, into power in his own right, not just, you know, takes the power within Moscow in his own right, like you said, declares himself the first czar of all Russia and somehow has the... If you think of the, the talent standpoint, we talked about all these people just being capable leaders, was capable enough to, yeah, he did it. The people rallied behind him. He was super harsh against the boyars who challenged his authority. And again, it, as, a, as a teenager, is establishing this firm grip on all of Russia, which is just kind of fascinating. And then it just kind of becomes a series of battles it's similar i would say in some ways to what we talked about with dracula but he's obviously in a much bigger more prominent position because russia is a much more major player than wallachia right yeah he definitely killed a lot of opponents he even killed his own son yes you know kind of just like a fit of rage yeah but yeah maybe not necessarily as creative with the killing as (laughs) as vlad was um, but still very ruthless and brutal. Yeah, a lot of it had to do, there's a million things. So there was the struggles within dealing with the boyars, but then there was the external struggles where, because they were, they struggled against, oh, what was the, it was a, it was basically one of the last remnants of the Mongol empire that that's name is escaping me, Kazan or something like that, that they were, they were fighting against that group kind of early on. Uh, then he was also fighting just to get, the biggest thing Russia had issue with is they want to be part of the trading circle in the Baltic Sea, but they have to get they have to get to it. And you have like, you know, you think about think about now, it's roughly where probably what St. Petersburg is now. It's kind of on the coast there, but that wasn't around yet. And they had to like fight for their right to even get into these trading circles. And so they're just uh 
a lot of battles with that, not just with, again, other countries, but within the nobles within his own country. Anyway, so lots of little things like that. But he was ruthless with his enemies and, you know, establishes, you know, this basically the, what, 16th century version of the SS that are going around just terrorizing the country. Right. They, they yeah, I forget, this, the, I forget the name, but he... Okrachina, o- o- Okrachina. It, it's some I can, it's some longish Russian word that I can't remember. Yeah, mo- uh, most significantly, they there was a big one against uh, Novgorod, where basically they said he... They, they uh, didn't destroy Novgorod, but basically beat it up so much that that's the reason it's not still a prominent... as prominent a city today. Basically... If Nogro was never raided by Ivan the Terrible's folks, then it would be the equivalent of like a Moscow or a Kiev today. And the fact that he just kind of beat it into submission and killed everyone who he thought was against him, men, women, and children, because they were just uh, vicious, is kind of what kept Novgro from ever becoming a Moscow equivalent. And it's one, obviously, I hadn't really heard, heard of Novgorod until learning about Ivan the Terrible versus if you do see stuff that's set back in the day, they're talking about Novgorod. Actually, it just came up, uh, spoiler alert for, for Vikings, more just what they talk about. Like, they mentioned Novgorod in Vikings. You know, cause oh, it really? Because it was a prominent city back in the 900s. And then it just kind of, and again, it still exists today, but not in the same same way that it might have, if, if not for Ivan the Terrible just being an absolute uh, bastard. Again, similar to Vlad the Impaler. He's just another magnificent bastard. And all this doesn't get into all the poisonings of his wives and you know his relationship with the church oh, and yeah and all, all the other things or the or the time that he this then this one's actually plays a big part in in the film is and, and the film was just ivan the terrible by the same guy who directed battleship potemkin where he basically just abdicates on or officially abdicates it, it was basically just like a trick though knowing that the boyars were going to fail and they'd have to come back begging him to take power and I don't know, I just kind of found that fascinating. It'd be like, I don't know, let's say, again, not to get political United States stuff, but just as an example, it'd be like if, oh, the coronavirus starts and Trump steps down, Pence becomes president, the virus goes terribly, and Congress begs Trump to come back. Right. Some, something yeah. along those lines. Where it's like, but, it's almost, but it was almost like a calculated thing. Like he knew it was going to go bad, so he right. left, and then he'd be begged. But then Ivan the Terrible, his, his condition on, Yes, I will come back if I have unquestioned absolute power. And right. they were basically in such desperate straits. They're like, okay. And yeah, just, just a fascinating figure. Worth mentioning again, too, is the name terrible is kind of a bad translation, but also still applicable. So it yeah. really just means, <laughs> it's really just more about how he was terrifying and great and had this, this authority and mystique about him. So terrible in the sense that he instills terror in his right. opponents but he was also terrible <laughs> and that's more of a coincidence than the actual translation yeah he, he also did bad stuff <laughs> right right so the russians don't necessarily consider him terrible just in the sense that the romanians don't consider vlad tepes evil or yeah so right. yeah and oh and, and the one i didn't realize too and i actually just found this one out this week and i don't know how i missed the first time around is Think of Moscow, modern day Moscow. Just close your eyes and picture Moscow. You know that little, that thing you're picturing, that colorful, like, temple church looking thing? Yeah. Ivan the Terrible is the one who had that built during his reign. Right. And it's still around today as, like, the main thing you think of for Moscow. So, like, right, and, yeah. and, he's, and he's the first czar. And he, he marries a Romanov. And 
they then ruled now so he wasn't Romanov but he married the Romanov into the Romanovs and then they end up ruling Russia all the way until the Bolshevik Revolution yeah so, hundreds of years yeah right Ivan the Terrible is Russia right case against it's a tough one I, I don't have I, much I would to say, say case against would be maybe not as much as far as this specific matchup goes probably not um, at least for people John Q. Public in the United States, probably Helen Keller is more of a recognizable name than right. I'm Terrible. Right, and he didn't necessarily have big influence outside of his sphere of Russia. He wasn't right. conquering down into Asia. He did defeat some enemies, but he didn't expand territory. He wasn't like, so as much as he was terrible and strong, it wasn't like Europe was scared of him. So it's like, he was just that guy over there. Like he 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 was he was pen pals with Queen Elizabeth. Right. And that's yeah. interesting, but it also kind of speaks to like it wasn't like she was like, "Oh no, Ivan the Terrible." It was like he he no one was quaking in their boots because Napoleon was way more intimidating to Europe than Ivan the Terrible was. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also say that, you know, maybe and I don't know, this this might be kind of arbitrary, but as far as this specific matchup is concerned, like the things that Helen Keller is a is an activist for are things that are still like relevant and applicable to our lives today whereas how much does Ivan the Terrible shape anything about our lives okay right okay. I'm saying you know stuff like you know supporting the NAACP and being a founding member of the ACLU and fighting for civil liberties and labor rights and the rights of women and disabled people like those are all things that are still very much you know, being debated over and fought for today politically. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Like okay. maybe maybe more relevance on the Hella Keller side to to us right now. Which does that make her more interesting or not? Right. Uh, right. I don't know. We'll find out. Yep. Okay. So let's uh, so let's uh, hash it out. So this is I'm I'm not getting a a big feeling one way or another for you, but for me. I gotta go Ivan the Terrible. I think he's more of a basic history person thing, but I agree that Helen Keller had led a very interesting life, but I think maybe she is more one note versus Ivan the Terrible is is fascinating. I think he just, right. I, so I, I, my vote is Ivan the Terrible. So I, I will preface this by saying that I think Helen Keller is uh, more relevant to a lot of stuff that is going on for us and probably more relevant to our lives and, uh, you know, more relevant to policy in the United States that actually affects us. That being said, I'm voting for Ivan the Terrible as well, because I think that his actual life is more interesting. OK, OK. So a little more clear cut. So, we don't, so we're in uh, what are we? Three episodes in, we've done six matchups here, and we've only had one. We've had to actually go to the the tiebreaker here, but that's uh, that's quite all right. So, again, I hope you're enjoying this as much as Logan and I are, because we, we don't really know where each other stands heading into each one of these. So, uh, tune in next time when we will be getting into our first uh, 20th century matchups, and we will hash out Winston Churchill versus John Glenn, and Nelson Mandela versus the Chinese Emperor Puyi. Yi.